Hello cult hackers and welcome to the podcast. I'm Celine, a media graduate with an interest in cults. And I'm her dad, Stephen Mather. I was a member of a high control group or cult up until I was about 30 when Celine came along. Um, these days I'm an organisational psychologist. I'm very interested in the whole question of high control and coercive control and all of that stuff. So welcome to the podcast, everybody. Um, we're very happy to have a guest today um, about a subject that we haven't talked about before. So first of all, welcome Abby to the podcast. Hi, <laughs> very nice to be here. <laughs> it's great to have you. So Abby, um, you are somebody that's experienced what I guess the umbrella term is the troubled teen industry. Um, and this is something that we've not talked about really at all, I don't think, on our podcast, um, which is probably a mistake. So it's high time we did speak to somebody about it. Um, so you're somebody who's experienced that. So maybe you'd like to tell us a little bit about your experience with that, and then we can get into what it is and um, a bit more of the history about it, if that's okay, Abby. Yeah, of course. Um, so I'll give just kind of a brief overview of the industry, just so that, you know, you and your listeners kind of know what I'm talking about a little right. bit. But, mm. um, the troubled teen industry is basically a network of behavior modification programs that are um, privately owned for the most part and um, very under regulated. So that allows for a lot of abuse and neglect to occur and even deaths in these programs. Um, it's usually very manipulative and money-driven uh, and they primarily exist within the United States, although there are programs overseas, um, many of which are created by Americans, but um, for the most part, it's a very American industry. Um, so yeah, I was, 15 and I was sent to two of these programs. Um, I spent a total of 16 months in Utah, which is a hot spot for these yeah. programs because of its lack of regulation and, you know, oversight of these programs. It has, I would say Utah has the most programs by far of any other state, but, you know, you also see pockets in Idaho, Montana, Texas, Florida, places that also have uh, pretty lax regulations. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, yeah, just tell us a bit more about your experience with it then. So obviously you've you've had a brush with this industry. So do you want to tell us how that happened? Yeah, um, so I, I've just always been an anxious person. I've had anxiety for pretty much my entire life. Um, it got worse when I went through puberty, um, just became a lot more unmanageable. And I also developed depression. Um, and also with that started self-harming, um, just was not in a good place mentally. Uh, my parents tried to help me, brought me to psychiatrists, psychologists, uh, which basically they just put me on a bunch of meds. Um, didn't really, there weren't a lot of resources for mental health for teens when I was, where I was living at the time I was in Australia and, um, my parents just tried everything that they could, but there really wasn't anything for them to do. Um, and a couple months before I moved back to America, I was assaulted at a party, which mm -hmm. kind of spiraled everything mm -hmm. and just made me the worst that I had been. So um, when my family moved back to California, um, like only a couple days later, I met with a psychiatrist who, um, kind of put me in a 5150, which involuntary hold in the psych ward. Um, okay. So I was there for a week. They put me on a ton of meds and uh, that was pretty much it released me. I was a zombie. I was on mm. like seven or eight different medications when I got out, really didn't feel like myself, um, stopped going to school, just was having a really hard time. I think I needed like a little bit of a break. So um, I wanted to go back into the psych ward just for like a break kind of thing, mm. because I was overwhelmed with life. Um, I was feeling a lot of pressure for my parents to go to school and I really couldn't manage it. Uh, so I got hospitalized again. And had I known that <laughs> that would lead to me not going home for 15 months, I definitely would have done things differently. Mm. But um, during my second 
hospitalization, uh, the psychiatrist told my parents that they should hire an educational consultant, which is a common route that kids take to uh, get into this industry. It's basically somebody who, you know, quote unquote, specializes in therapeutic placements. Um, so he, you know, tried to get my parents to send me to a wilderness program. I told my parents if they sent me anywhere, I was going to kill myself. So that kind of disqualified me from going to wilderness. Mm -hmm. um, instead, he convinced them to send me to a lockdown facility in Utah. Um, uh, I spent three months there. But pretty much as soon as I arrived at this place, I knew that it was going to be a very bad experience and a very different experience than what I was expecting. Um, the first thing that happened when I arrived, I was transported, you know, two people showed up in my hotel room, took me um, in the middle of the night. Uh, when I arrived, I was, you know, really tired. I was still super drugged up, kind of disoriented from waking up at four in the morning and jumping on a plane. Um, the first thing that happened was two staff members took me into a bathroom, locked the door and told me that I had to get naked. And I was like immediately like felt a panic attack just because, you know, mm -hmm. not only am I a 15 year old girl who just like is insecure and doesn't like being naked in front of anybody, but you know, I'd also been assaulted and um, these are, two strangers. I'm in a new state. I have no way of contacting my family, just really freaking out. And I kind of, you know, was like, Hey, I'm really not comfortable with that. Is there something else we can do? Like, maybe I can take my clothes off and you give me a gown and then you come back in the room or, you know, trying to kind of, of negotiate other ways. Cause that's what they did at the psych ward. The right. people at the okay. psych ward never saw me naked. Mm -hmm. Um, but I don't remember how they exactly said it, but the gist of it was you're going to take your clothes off or we're going to take them off for you. So I immediately was like, oh, this is not the place that I thought it was. <laughs> like, wow. I really thought that I was going to some place like the psych ward just a little bit longer term, but mm -hmm. um, it ended up being completely different. Um, wow. Yeah, so... Well, that's that sounds absolutely awful. I mean, I'm so sorry you went through that, and and the lead up to that is horrific. So sorry. Um, I mean, my first thought is, Celine, I want to get your reaction to that because you're a young woman. Um, mm -hmm. How? What's your first thoughts when you hear that story? Um, well, I mean, it's just awful, mortifying. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, like you said, even in instances where yeah, you get given a, a gown and that sort of thing. That in that instance when I'd been ill myself, that was still like uh, you know panic inducing at that point when I'd been ill and someone gave me the gown I was like oh this is happening and that went into like shock so for it to be even more you know brutal <laughs> is mm. is horrendous um and I guess the the other thing that's screaming in my head is how is this legal is it legal how is it happening you know it unfortunately is legal which right. is ridiculous to me yeah I don't even so, know how to wrap my head around that. <laughs> yeah. So let me just, um, I, I just want to collect my thoughts about what's happened. So you've, you've had, um, a, a, what should we call it? An episode, a, a feeling of, of intense anxiety. You've had a, a terrible experience that's, that's aggravated this as well. Um, you've actually, you've actually want, you want some help. You're, you're looking for help when, when they, suggest this place this educational consultant recommends this place and um, how do you feel about that at the time before you get there do you feel quite positive about it or what's your feelings on that um so I was very opposed to being sent anywhere just okay. because uh you know I didn't want to be sent to Utah oh, I didn't want to spend course. time in a program but I did know that I needed help and my parents seemed really enthusiastic that this would help me. And I wanted to try for them. Um, and that was after the initial anger that I felt when they told me they were sending me away. Um, I actually tried to get emancipated by, because when you're in the psych ward, they give you like a little book with all your rights. And one of them yeah. is you can talk to a lawyer. So I called the lawyer obviously didn't go anywhere because, mm. you know, I was a 15 year old in the psych ward. Um, but 
you know, my parents told me you're going to be going to a, you know, month long program. It'll be in Utah, but don't worry, you know, we can call you every day and it'll only be a month. And, you know, they're going to do all these tests and figure out, you know, what's wrong with you and what medications to put you on. And so I, you know, I kind of expected it to be just like the psych ward, but a little bit longer and a little further away from my parents. Um, When in reality, it was nothing like that at all. And, you know, instead of staying a month, I stayed for three months and then had another 13 months at another program afterwards. Wow. So there's like a parallel, there's two parallel universities here. There's, there's one that is being told your parents and um, that's being relayed to you. And then there's the, the reality. Um, Do you want to carry on talking about the reality and then perhaps we'll come back to the way it was sold or missold. Um, So what, let's pick up your story if we can from you, you've just um, got there and, um tell us what happens next yeah so um I was very medicated so I remember more just general stuff about the program more than like chronological days and events um but you know it was a very small facility I think there were about between 12 and 18 of us there at any given time um it was a lockdown facility. So, you know, big metal door uh, with tons of locks on it, very secure. We had to get padded down every time we walked into or out of a room. Uh, All of our rooms and bathrooms and pretty much every door was locked at all times. One of the, I guess, you know, we talked about my initial strip search, but one of the more damaging things that I experienced when I was there was that because I had a history of self-harm, I had to be strip searched uh, three times a week. And that was often performed by male staff just because, you know, a male was on the staff mm-hmm. and he was like, mm-hmm. I'm a medical professional. Don't worry. But, you know, these weren't medical professionals. Mm-hmm. These were college students or people who had just graduated college you know, taking a 15 year old into the bathroom and, you know, making her get naked. So, um, yeah, which, I mean, there's no way that's legal, but I guess somehow it is. Um, and they also had a seclusion room, which was conveniently located right across the hallway from my room, uh, which was basically just a small room with white tiles and, you know, concrete floor with a drain in it. Um, and that was used as solitary confinement in this program. It was honestly like, yeah, it was horrendous. Every time you would hear someone in there, you know, they would just be screaming and banging their heads on the wall. And, you know, I would try to pretend not to hear it, just stay in my room, pretend to read a book, but, you know, it's really hard to ignore that kind of thing. Um, I was, you know, someone was put in there my first couple days. So that's when I kind of knew, like, I got to never act out in this program. I don't want to go in there. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I, from the beginning had this mindset of, I'm going to do what they tell me. I'm going to do what they say. I'm not going to act out. I'm not going to be a bad kid. I want to go home, you know, Mm -hmm. because I started seeing that a lot of the people I was there with weren't going home afterwards. They were going on to longer um, therapeutic boarding schools, residential treatment centers, things like that. And I was like, not me though. My parents told me I'm coming home after like, you know, totally delusional, but (laughs) I really thought that I would be going home, not realizing that, um, this place that I was at part of what they do is make recommendations to parents about next steps. Right. And, uh, they never, recommend a kid go home afterwards it's always go to a longer term program it's kind of a pipeline into um longer term trouble teen programs so i think i know the answer to this abby why do you think that is why do you believe that is well i know why it is for the program i was sent to specifically it's because uh it's owned by the same parent company but you know, I think that similar to educational consultants, there are kickbacks that are received for a lot of these programs. A lot of educational consultants receive kickbacks that are not disclosed. 
Um, and you know, I guess it makes them look more professional and I guess they also take a, like a better safe than sorry kind of, you know, stance with it of like, Mm -hmm. well, they may as well benefit from this. And, you know, maybe they're sending a kid to a program that they've never been to and they just assume that it's helpful, even though, you know, Mm -hmm. this kid is going to be traumatized and worse off when they get out than when they went in. So um, during your time, um, obviously it's kind of sold that you'd be able to speak to your parents and that sort of thing. Um, Was that actually something you got or was that one of the things that was another lie? No, that was, that was another lie. Um, I, I think when I was there, so we were able to send letters, but they would be read by staff before sent out and, you know, they would monitor them. Uh, we didn't get phone calls that I recall. I think the only times I talked to my parents were pretty close to the end of my stay when I had like a call with my therapist and, you know, my parents and they were Um, they were telling me that I was going to be sent away and I, that was the most helpless that I've ever felt in my entire life because, Mm -hmm. you know, here I am having just been through a horrible experience for two to three months. I think it was close to close to three months. Um, my parents don't believe me. They think I'm a horrible kid. They think that I need to go to a long-term program, which they told me at the time was going to be about six to eight months um, another lie. <laughs> I don't know if they were lying purposely or if that's what the ed consultant told them, but it was not six to eight months. Um, but I was freaking out at that. I was trapped in this lockdown facility in another state. I had not no way of co- t- talking to my parents, just me and them, you know, it was mm-hmm. always going to be monitored by staff members. I was always going to be accused of being manipulative if I tried to say anything bad about the program. Um, yeah, it was just a very high control environment. Yeah. And uh, I just remember, I'll never forget that feeling of helplessness. So just to um, so, so just get the timeline right. So you spent um, sort of around three months at this first place. Mm-hmm. And then and then do you come home and then go to another one? Or do you go straight to a to a different one? I went straight to the second program located only about a five minute drive down the same road, which again, speaks to the density of these programs in Utah. Uh, You pretty much can't drive 20 minutes without seeing at least one. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, that was another one of probably the worst days in my life. Mm -hmm. I wasn't transported by like an actual transport company this time because it was such a short trip. I was feeling initially hopeful about the program because I had heard that, you know, it's not a lockdown, so it's less strict. You know, my therapist been pulled up their website and I, you know, we looked through their website together and it didn't seem like a bad place. Uh, It definitely, you know, they, they talk about being relationship based and, you know, holistic approach and all these buzzwords Mm -hmm. that make it sound like it's going to be kind of hippy dippy, you know, like (laughs) healing and whatever. Mm -hmm. But again, that's pretty much immediately when I got there was not the reality. Basically, again, I was strip searched, although they gave you a towel to hold up this time. So it wasn't just like fully, Mm -hmm. you know, but, you know, the staff still looked over the towel. So it was just kind of like there for like a sense of security. And they operated using a level system, which is very common in these types of programs, basically, you know different phases that you have to work your way up through by completing um, assignments and uh, meeting goals, like, you know, with your therapy and, you know, community work and everything like that. So when you get there, you're on orientation and basically have no privileges whatsoever. You have to be arm's length with the staff member at all times. Uh, You're not allowed to speak to anybody without that staff member listening, which, you know, they're right next to you. So they are going to be listening. Um, Can't read books, can't, you know, walk around by yourself, can't go to the bathroom unsupervised, like just very invasive. I met with my therapist the first couple of days that I was there and she was the worst. (laughs) She was like literally one of the meanest people that I've ever met in my life um it's 
can I just ask you these these therapists that you're dealing with both at both of these places are these um qualified registered therapists they are most they of are. them are okay. LCSWs um or LMFTs but I will say that this industry there's a pipeline from Brigham Young University in Utah uh a lot of the staff members there come from BYU and they're all kind of trained in the same type of heavily Mormon therapy, mm. to put it that way. Mm. Um, there's a lot of Mormon beliefs factored into their beliefs. Understandably, yeah. you know, they're Mormon, but mm -hmm. a lot of the kids that were there were not Mormon. Mm. And, you know, it was kind of just weird to have a lot of those Mormon beliefs pushed onto us all the time. My therapist, Melissa, she was an LMFT. And she like, one of the first things that you do before you're allowed to progress forward in the program at all is you have to write a letter of accountability, um, which is also something that's very common in these programs. Basically just taking accountability for everything that you did. You have to send it to your parents after it's approved by a therapist. And, you know, they send you back an impact letter, which is, you know, how all of your actions affected them. And it's a really hard process. I had to rewrite my uh, letter of accountability several times because my therapist refused to send it until I had um, taken accountability for being sexually assaulted because I was drinking at the time. So that yeah. was kind of when I realized like, mm -hmm. oh, this is not going to be a good therapist for mm -hmm. me. This is not a good experience because like I think a lot of people who have been assaulted struggle with the thoughts of like, it's my fault. What could I have done? How could I have prevented it? And, you know, logically just from, you know, other therapists that I had seen and stuff, I knew that it wasn't my fault. Mm. And I thought that she was going to help reinforce that in me instead of, you know, telling me mm. the exact opposite. No, it is your fault. You need to take accountability for it. You were drinking. If you hadn't been, it wouldn't have happened. So that was a really fun process for me. Wow. Terrible. Terrible. Yeah. Um, so how long did you have to stay there, Abby? 13 months. Wow. Yeah. So in total, how long did you spend in these places, did you say? About 16 months. About 16 months. Yeah. Um, so you, you come back after this. I guess um, at some point they decide that you're either – the gravy train has run long enough or they think you're well enough to go back home. So do you want to tell us a little bit about that process? Yeah. So there was basically three ways you could leave. You could get pulled by your parents. You could turn 18 and sign yourself out, or you could graduate. Um, I was 15 when I went in, there was no way that I was spending, you know, I was about to be 16, but there was no way that I was spending two years there. I was just mm -hmm. like, I'm not going to wait it out. There's no way my parents are going to pull me because they made that very clear. Um, anytime I tried to bring up any negative thing during our visits and stuff, uh, they would just be like, you're manipulating us. You know why? You know, you're being so manipulative, blah, blah, blah. They tell my therapist or, you know, whatever. And I'd be punished when I got back. Um, so I basically realized that the only way for me to leave was to graduate. So eventually I just gave up with, you know, trying to get out. I conformed. I did exactly what they told me to do. Uh, I became very brainwashed because, of course, you know, you don't have any privileges. You're taken, all your rights are taken away. And then when you start making, like, you know, quote unquote progress, um, they start giving you privileges back. Mm -hmm. And you're like, oh, this isn't so bad. Like, you know, it's kind of like a Stockholm syndrome kind of thing mm -hmm. where you're like, you know, oh, I see, like, you know, they're tough on us, but I see why they have to be and, you know, mm. all this stuff. So I, I kind of became like, I just became brainwashed, like a little robot, you know? Um, and I progressed through all the levels. There were seven levels. Uh, 13 months is actually one of the quicker stays there. Um, people, the longest that I've heard of was a girl was there for four years. Um, from the time that she was 14 to 18 and then she went to their aftercare program uh, which I can't imagine how damaging that is but yeah I graduated okay. from there they had this little ceremony for me to just be like oh great um, and then I got back home to California and uh, none of my school credits transferred because their school was 
BS. <laughs> um, yeah, not a genuine to, school. Yep, and I had to repeat the uh, my junior year because mm-hmm. none of my credits would transfer over. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's basically how I got out. So I'm curious about, um, and again, you don't have to talk about this and anything you don't want to talk about. That's cool. But in terms of how your parents responded when you got back and how you responded to being back with your parents, I'm guessing you felt pretty angry with them. Um, or maybe you didn't because you were brainwashed. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that, how that all kind of happened when you got back and and got into normal life? Yeah. So um, I think initially when I got out, I was very brainwashed and I felt, you know, that, you know, I'm so grateful for my parents. This is the best thing that they could have done for me. Look how great I am now. Um, Just really repressing all of the traumatic things that had happened while I was there. Um, A girl nearly died while I was there because of medical neglect, like literally 10 to 20% chance of survival is what she had when she was at the hospital. Um, I watched kids get restrained almost daily um, locked in the basement, had to just be constantly humiliated. We, you know, had attack therapy groups where people would berate you over tiny little things that you did. Um, and you know, I had to do that to other people. I had to berate people as well, because I, you know, that's one of the hardest things for me processing is the trauma that I've inflicted on others Mm. because I was forced to. And that's why I don't hold any resentment towards any of the people at the program, any of the residents at the program, um, because the things that they did and said to me, they were just doing so that they could go home and they could progress. And I totally understand that. My parents, I when I first got out, yes, I was brainwashed. That lasted about six months. And I got out when I was about to turn 17. Yeah, I was about to turn 17 when I got out. Um, And I was just really terrified of being sent back because I'd heard about that happening to other people. I'd actually seen a girl who graduated be sent back. And that terrified me. I did not want that to happen to me. So I pretty much was on a mission to be like the perfect daughter. Um, Went to bed early, did all my homework, got straight A's, you know, never like lied to them or snuck out or drank or smoked or anything. Like I was just on a mission to be as perfect as possible. But, you know, the brainwashing started coming undone around six months after I got out. Um, I opened up to my boyfriend at the time about what I had experienced because he kind of felt something was fishy and was like, hey, you know, you said you were at a boarding school. What boarding school? You know, blah, blah. I eventually told him just very small amounts of information about it, because that's one of the things they told you. Don't tell anybody where you were. Don't tell them about your experience. They'll think you're crazy. They won't understand. You'll push them away. So it was very ingrained in me of like, I can't tell anybody about this. I can't talk about my experience. And I told him just very small amounts of information. And he was like, shocked and like started crying. I felt really bad because I was like, I didn't even realize that this was like that bad. But once that started becoming a little bit undone, uh, I was actually taking a memoir class in high school at that time. And I asked my teacher if I could write a little bit about my experience, just like to make sure it wasn't like too heavy or anything. And I wrote a short little memoir for that class and um, asked my parents if they wanted to read it. And you know, they were very defensive about their decision at first. I think when they realized the truth of what happened to me in there, they immediately, you know, how can you not feel defensive and feel, you know, really upset that, you know, you put your kid through that. And I totally get that. I don't have any resentment towards them. I had brief periods of anger for their decision, but, um, you know, overall, they didn't know the truth of what was happening in there. They didn't know what I was going through. And if they had, I know they would not have sent me there. So um, I really don't hold any resentment towards them for that. And they know that now. I suppose coming off of that with, um, you know, the fact that obviously the things were being kept from them. um, I suppose that's where the the legalities, I suppose, as well, I get even more confused with, because I suppose they're kind of hiding under the 
you you at the time were a minor so they they were using your parents sort of guardianship um as their reasoning why they could get away with doing things um but if they don't know what's happening and they're your guardians how how is that I don't understand how that can exist is it just because it's not been spoken about enough or what do you think um I think that part of it is that you know we really aren't allowed to uh, speak to our parents in an unmonitored way. We uh, would get one short phone call each week that was, you know, monitored by staff. They were listening to us and they could hang it up at any time if they wanted to. Um, Like one girl found out her dog died and started like crying and, you know, begging her mom to take her home because she loved that dog so much. And, uh, staff just grabbed the phone hung up and you know she wasn't allowed to call home for a few weeks after that because you know she had tried to be manipulative and um you know there's actually I got a copy of the parent handbook that they give to our parents and there's an entire section in there it's called the window of opportunity and it's all about how to respond to us when we inevitably beg to come home and it gives even examples of things that we might say Um, which most of them are pretty accurate to like what was actually going on. You know, Uh, staff are creepy. The food is bad. They're not feeding me enough. The people here are really mean. My therapist is horrible. You know, all these things that are pretty valid complaints from my experience there. And, you know, they basically give you a cookie cutter response to, wow, that sounds really tough. How are you going to deal with that? And, you know, they they basically prep our parents that we're going to try to manipulate them. That's just comes with the territory. So, of course, when we actually bring up these abuses, they don't believe us. They say, oh, yeah, we've been prepped for this. That's right. That's so fascinating, isn't it? And that is so similar to other coercive situations where, yeah, they they're prepared in advance to. Um, to field these sorts of questions that's that's really interesting um, and a horrible of course if you're enjoying the podcast you can support it by becoming a patron you can support the podcast for just one pound or a dollar fifty and receive a variety of patreon benefits as a thank you don't forget to share the podcast follow like subscribe and rate the podcast on the podcast app you're using A review is particularly helpful as it gets us recognised by new listeners. And finally, if you'd like to reach out to us and tell us about some court hacking you've been involved in, or you just want to say hi, you can do so by going to courthackers.com and using the contact form. We love hearing from our court hackers. Thank you for listening, and now back to the podcast. Obviously, all of this is not on the website, is it? You know, so um, how do they... How, how what's the the outside philosophy how do they sell these things and and i guess i want to ask you about your views about you know whether we lump all these sorts of wilderness groups and away groups and all of these things into the same bucket because i have no idea so i want to get your thoughts on that but also um how how do they the, the sorts of thing that you experienced how is that sold to people what's the what's the what's the way that people think it's this is going to be a good thing the basic way that uh the tti brings in its clientele is it preys on desperate parents who are worried about their kids and pretty much give them uh you know you need to send your kid here or they're going to die they're going to be dead in a mental hospital or in jail if you don't send them to this program um a lot of programs are like market themselves in very deceptive ways online. Um, there were a few companies in the early 2000s that would, you know, pretty much scam parents and pretend to be independent referral services when really, you know, they were a company that owned 20 programs and they would just be like, oh, it sounds like your kid is, you know, really struggling here. We have a perfect program for you right here. And it's one of the ones they own. So There have historically been a lot of deceptive marketing practices. Um, Today, I think with the internet the way that it is, they are a lot lot more sneaky. Um, They use a lot of words like relationship-based, holistic, um, safe healing, you know, 
all these things avoid a lot of the labels of behavior modification, which is what these programs are. Yeah. Um, but they don't like to use that word because, you know, it sounds like boot campy. And, you know, a lot of desperate parents these days aren't looking to send their kids to boot camps like they have been historically. Okay, that's um, yeah. So there's, you know, there's quite a few different branches of the TTI. Obviously, there's residential treatment centers, um, therapeutic boarding schools, which accept, I guess, less serious issues as well. Like it was a lot of pretty severe issues, you know, suicide, um, self-harm, eating disorders, PTSD, anxiety, depression, things like that. But, you know, there were also kids there that were there because they like snuck out and their parents had had enough, you know. Um, There are wilderness programs, which are, you know, kind of the shorter term uh, backpacking, you know, nightmares that a lot of kids in the media have been talking out about, uh, which is incredible. Um, And those programs just seem like hell. I do feel lucky that I was spared from going there. And, you know, there are also a lot of religious programs, uh, which are very seldom regulated because they, you know, largely exist in states with religious exemptions that say, um, oh, no, you don't need to be licensed by the state as long as you're religious, because they argued that it would impede their religious freedom. Uh, Mm. And, um, one sector of it that I don't think is talked about enough are these programs that primarily, instead of, you know, taking private pay uh, kids from their parents, having their parents pay are kids who are sent from the juvenile justice system and the foster care system. Um, There are lots of kids who are sent into these programs. If you're in the foster care system and you have, you know, mental health issues, like a lot of these kids do, Um, instead of trying to find a foster home that will take this kid, uh, they'll just send them to this program because they don't know any better. These courts think that, oh, this will be a great therapeutic experience. Instead, these kids are abused. Um, Mm -hmm. Same thing with the court system. A lot of times juvenile offenders, the judges will say, you know, you can either spend a month in juvie or you can attend this treatment program and you know not knowing any better they pick the treatment program not knowing that they'll be there for two years instead of a month and it'll be way worse than juvie um and they'll leave worse than they went in so there's a lot of different branches of it um i think the one that's been getting the most media attention are obviously like wilderness programs and these therapeutic boarding school residential treatment center Take places. I suppose having a background in psychology, I'm interested in how they try to explain the psychology of what's happening here. So, um, why do they think this this is going to work? What do they think they are actually doing? Let's let's for a moment give them the most charitable, um, you know, um, view possible. Let's say they actually are. Most of them, or some of them, are trying to help. Um, how do they think this is helping? What's their what's their philosophy? Their philosophy is basically um, that they will break you down in order to build you back up as a better person. Okay. Um, right. That's that's kind of the general philosophy that I've picked up, okay. um, which you know may work for some people. People with really you know like narcissistic personality disorder or things like that. Um, people who have been in trouble with, you know, violent crimes, things like that. There's even, you know, some evidence that drug addiction, like, you know, going back to the Synanon style of drug therapy, you know, he, that organization before it became a violent cult found a lot of success in healing heroin addicts um, through this use of attack therapy of breaking them down, building them back up. The, The problem with this industry is that it's not just those types of people that are sent here. You know, there are people who were abused. Um, There are people who are really depressed and have extremely low self-esteem. People with eating disorders, people, you know, all types of people who breaking you down, like when I went in there, I was already broken. I didn't need to be broken down anymore. (laughs) Yeah, for somebody who's suffering anxiety, that is, uh, I'm not a therapeutic psychologist, but um, it doesn't sound like the right approach to me. I mean, I would question whether in any circumstances that is actually a useful 
um, approach. You need to do proper control studies to see um, in very different cohorts, as you say. Lumping everybody together, though, um, including people with anxiety, um, seems, mm -hmm. yeah, very, very strange and is unlikely to have any positive effects, isn't it? Yeah. Feels like there's a lot of um I think you, you said it already kind of blame on onto the people that are actually going through difficult um you know really difficult um times and and the pointing as though it's all like it's a choice um it, that's positioned in that way towards the parents it's like as though yeah yeah these children are manipulative and it's it it makes it sound like uh, there's a bunch of kids choosing. And why on earth would anyone choose to be struggling to a degree that they get put in this place? And if they could just turn it off, why wouldn't they? Because um, everyone wants to go home. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So you you mentioned there synonym, um, and um, that I guess is often quoted as, in a way, uh, if not the beginning, one of the sort of early phases of this sort of uh, mentality. And you've also meant mentioned attack therapy. So maybe we. We, we cover off those two things a little bit. And because um, as you said in our little pre-chat, um, you know, you, you do a lot of studying afterwards, don't you, when you've been in a group like this of, of all sorts and you start to yeah. learn the history. So mm -hmm. do you want to tell us a little bit about the history of, of how we end up with these sorts of organizations? Definitely. So um, the first kind of programs that I would say feed into the modern troubled teen industry were um, just a series of kind of like therapeutic wilderness camps um, started in, you know, the 1940s, 1950s. Um, and, you know, I think the interesting thing about the troubled teen industry is that there have been several kind of different roads that have converged into what we think of as the model, modern troubled teen industry. And um, all of them have brought slightly different tactics and methods that, you know, are still around today. Um, the most talked about is definitely Synanon. It was a cult uh, that wasn't always a cult. It was founded as a drug rehabilitation program in 1958, I believe, um, by Chuck Diedrich. And he was an ex-alcoholic, um, you know, who was a big, you know, speaker at AA meetings. Um, he took acid as part of as part of a uh, UCLA study on the effects of LSD on alcoholics and, you know, had a spiritual awakening, uh, some might say, decided to start his own uh, drug rehabilitation program, um, started kind of as an alcoholic program, but word got around and drug addicts or, you know, dope fiends, as he called them, started showing up. Uh, and, you know, he he basically believed that AA wasn't tough enough, um, okay. that you know, people could go to these meetings and they could say, oh, I'm, you know, I haven't drank in 60 days, but, you know, there was no one checking in on that. Okay. And, you know, maybe someone saw them stumbling down the street a couple of days ago and there was no way to confront them and say, hey, I saw you, you were drinking yesterday or whatever. So Chuck kind of wanted this open form uh, group where people could confront each other in a very honest and, uh, yeah, confrontational way. Um, so that's basically where attack therapy, the idea of attack therapy began of pointing out someone's flaws very uh, meanly and very publicly um, in the hope that this will, you know, reveal some great truth about them and change their ways. Uh, so, you know, eventually, as most groups started by narcissists do, became a cult. Mm. Um, and that, you know, they eventually tried to murder a lawyer who was, you know, mm. coming after them, put a snake in his mailbox, uh, a lot of other very horrific things, forcing men to get vasectomies, women to get abortions, um, shaving their followers' heads, uh, buying stockpiling guns and ammunition, you know, all the great hallmarks of a classic cult. Um, yes. <laughs> eventually they were disbanded in 1991 by the LAPD, which is very lucky, uh, that they're not around anymore. But, you know, one of the first, uh, 
really one of the first big companies of the troubled teen industry, CDU, um, was founded by a Synanon member. And uh, the name CEDU, C-E-D-U, is how it's spelled. Um, it A lot of people speculate that it stands for Charles E. Diederich University. Because um, oh. Chuck Diederich, the you know founder of Synanon, was often referred to as CED. So, <laughs> wow. and of course, they tried to deny that once it became a cult. But um, yeah, definitely some interesting connections there. <laughs> Okay, so um, we've we've got this um, CDU then, which is um, where do they they start to target a wider range of people? Then, so it sounds like Synanon is more adults. These are um, alcoholics or people suffering with with drug addiction, yeah. um, and then it, it starts to spread to a more sort of uh, to a wider group, including children. So the founder of CDU was Mel Wasserman. He was a, he was a Synanon member, but he wasn't a drug addict. He was um, a square who was someone who just joined for, you know, the alternative lifestyle. Um, they have names for people. So people that joined that weren't ad- addicts were called squares. Yeah, you're either a dope okay. fiend or a square. Um, okay. <laughs> and Mel Wasserman was a square. Um, and he, you know, really was just a fan of, Chuck's teachings and um, his method of therapy. And he thought, you know, maybe I could create my own programs for this, but work with, you know, younger kids, you know, the teenagers uh, that he saw, you know, dropping out of school and smoking dope and all this stuff that, uh, you know, was a big fear at the time. It was, Mm -hmm. you know, the sixties, the mid sixties, late sixties. And that's kind of how he created CDU. Um, a lot of things were very similar. There were uh, groups, attack therapy groups called RAPS, um, where the kids were made to scream at each other and very similar to the Synanon style attack therapy. Um, you know, haircuts, uh, both metaphorical and actual. If kids really misbehaved, they would cut their hair. Lots of uh, it was basically a copy paste of Synanon, but mm, for kids. And, okay. you know, the thing about Synanon was most of the people who were there chose to be there. They joined um, to get help. And with Synanon or CDU, it was the opposite. Yeah. Those kids, that was kind of the first time that parents were actually sending their kids there. Um, and they kind of, you know, created transport companies a little bit. You know, some programs were doing that. Um so I just want to um, pick up on that that phrase, transport companies. That sounds like, um, you know, like a fairly benign taxi service. But the transport companies are are these thugs that show up in the middle of the night and yeah. um, threaten you, aren't they? Yep, they're goons, is what yeah. kind of you know the colloquial term is. But mm. um, yeah, that I guess I was lucky because I kind of knew that I was being transported. But many kids don't. They're basically these people who just show up one day in the or one night in the middle of your room like when you're asleep um a lot of people uh literally go to bed just thinking it's a normal night and they wake up and there's two people standing at the foot of their bed at three in the morning saying hey come with us they have handcuffs zip ties pepper spray things like that Mm -hmm. um and you know they kids don't even know they're going anywhere they think they're being kidnapped which so I've, I've traumatic way to it's know. terrible um I, i've obviously listening to um some documentaries about this subject and the you can either do it the easy way or the hard way keeps coming up as a phrase yeah. that they um they say uh, and you know there's nothing um other than this is kidnapping isn't it this is forcible yeah. um removal from your home it's it's shocking it's like how is that bit sold like because obviously you know someone's got to let them in or whatever like how's that bit is it just okay this is important they've got to get them on board this is part of it you know how do you sell that to the parent (laughs) because it starts pretty heavy (laughs) yeah I think the way that it's sold to many parents is um you know if their kids have any issues with running away or things like that they say you know if you tell them that they're going to this program they'll never go they'll run away and Mm -hmm. you know you have to sneak up on them. You have to ambush them when they least expect it, when they're asleep in the middle of the night. And uh, that's, I think, yeah. you know, I, I know for my parents, it was sold as um, 
it'll be more effective if you don't take her then, which, you know, now I kind of realize is because had they taken me, they would have seen it. They would have visited and seen exactly what was going on there. Um, So I think they try to create that distance between parents and the programs uh, so that they don't have parents actually know what's going on. Um, And I think it's sold as kind of like a, you know, this is going to be the best thing for your kid because, you know, they'll be safe. And these people are professionals who are trained and they can't run away from them. And, you know, kids are often Mm -hmm. zip tied, handcuffed, restrained, things like that, just to get them to the program. And then, you know. But it's a statement of intent, isn't it? So um, obviously they sell it to the parents one way, but in reality, it's a statement of intent. It's a message to the to the child that, um, you know, we, we're in charge. You are subordinate. It's a power game that's being played here very, very clearly. And uh, it starts at that moment. It's like um, all of the yeah. cool stuff, all mm. the, you know, with all the models, like bike model and that sort of It's all of that all at once, isn't it? Like it's it's the physical stuff. It's setting yeah. Yeah, the tone. It isolates you straight away from, you know, mm. anyone you know. Um, yeah. Just all in one, one action there. <laughs> Yeah, seriously. <laughs> it's kind of the uh the introduction to the uh entire nightmare that yeah, you know all these people experience. So so we're coming to the end of our conversation. I mean, Abby, um it's been absolutely fascinating. Um awful, but um really fascinating. What I mean, you you you're talking very lucidly now about this experience and uh, i want to cut we always like to have a positive note i suppose you have survived this experience and and um you know you're able to talk about it um tell us a little bit about about that how you managed to uh make sense of it all and and get yourself together and and be able to talk to us about it um well it took a lot of time and a lot of work uh i think when I started to come out of the brainwashing and, you know, think about my experience in a more, you know, clear way. Um, the first thing that I wanted to do was just understand what I had been through. Um, I felt so alone. I felt like I was the only person in the world who was thinking how I was. Um, and I was just, it was so overwhelming to me once I found like figured out that this wasn't a good experience. Um, so, you know, I, I went online, did a little bit of research, kind of where I found out the connections between, you know, the first program I went to and the second program and, you know, the rebrand that happened there. Um, and I was just really interested in that whole thing. And I kind of started researching more, the more I researched, the more I found about all of these programs and their histories and, you know, the histories of not only the programs I went to and the companies that own them, but their connections to other programs like CDU. Everything was connected in this crazy web that honestly, that's what helped me heal the most was understanding that the things that happened to me, it wasn't because I was a bad kid. It wasn't because I, you know, was this horrible monster who put my parents through so much. And I did put my parents through a lot. I will say that, but um, the kind of help that I needed was not what I got. And it took me a long time to believe that, that I didn't deserve this treatment. And um, through this research that I've been doing, it really has made it clear to me that this is just the way the industry is. You could be a straight A student never done drugs, never had any issues with the police or with, you know, your parents or anything. And you can still be sent to this. You just have to have kind of crazy parents who, you know, are upset that you get a B. Like Mm -hmm. there are, and you're going to be treated the same as someone who has been arrested for um, a crime or Mm -hmm. someone who has been violent and acted out violently towards others. It's, it's not a reflection of you as a person. It is a reflection of the industry. And that has been a big thing that I've come to realize that has changed how I think about my experience. Yeah. Because it's a system that's, that's got a a machine behind it. And um, as soon as you're put into that meat grinder, then that's 
the way it's going to operate on whoever gets put into that. So as you say, yeah. it doesn't really matter who you are, um, and you have no agency as a as a minor. You're, you know, that's that's one of the the horrific things about it. Um, mm. I, I did want to ask you about um, clearly. There's, um, I mean, in the UK particularly, of course, we have lots of boarding schools, um, although not as much as you might mm-hmm. imagine you know we, we're not all harry potter over here but um <laughs> it has a tradition the uk has a tradition of the boarding school i suppose um mm-hmm. for very wealthy people and um there's something called the prince's trust which is um uh, a charity that that lets kids go camping in sort of wilderness situations i mean as much wilderness as you can get in the uk um i i do we are we worried about all of these is there any way of knowing whether there's there's um experiences that are okay or dangerous what what, how can you help me with that because i i don't understand that really um so i think for me uh when i'm hearing about a new place that might potentially be a tti program um i'm the person who's been creating this database on reddit on the troubled teen subreddit. So that's kind of where all of my research goes. Um, And sometimes people will come to me and say, hey, I just heard about this program. Is it a TTI program? One of the first places I look is at the reviews. If there's a lot of people or, you know, even a few people saying um, this place is a scam. Don't send your kid here. I was abused here. Um, You know, anything Mm -hmm. with the hallmarks of a TTI, anything I can read and say, hey, that sounds a lot about like, you know, what I experienced or what I've read other people experienced. That's immediately a red flag for me. Um, There are also a list of kind of red flags uh, that you can find on the wiki and also on um, various other places online. I think Breaking Code Silence has it on their website and Unsilenced also has a list of red flags. you know, like kind of the standard things, monitoring mail, um, limiting communication, uh, the, the you know, whole privilege level system thing, making kids admit to things that they didn't do. Um, there's a lot of red flags on that list that would kind of signify that it's involved in the troubled teen industry. So I would say to start there and I can Okay. provide that link to you if you want yeah i was gonna say send us any links that you think are useful and we'll put them on the show notes for people to Great. to follow yeah that yeah. sounds really good and there's a few documentaries online um about this topic i suppose the celebrity paris hilton is the most well-known um name that's um that's become public about this particular issue so um i think mm-hmm. she's spoken about this as well um so yeah this is something i'm gonna learn a lot more about yeah, I can send you um some more uh mm. you know names of uh, articles and documentaries and things. Thanks. There's mm. quite a few out there. Mm. That would be really yeah. good. Thank you. Definitely, because I think as you said, um, it's not uh, well with all of these uh, things we talk about, um, coercive groups, can cults and stuff. No one, um, I think loads of people have said no one joins a cult. I don't think people <laughs> purposely send their kids to places they think are going to be awful. So knowing yeah. those red flags, um up front is yeah really really useful because yeah no one no one's uh going uh jumping in and like oh cool it'd be nice yeah, <laughs> fancy a bit of that you know <laughs> yeah let's have my kid join a cult yeah. <laughs> that'll be good for them yeah Absolutely. exactly exactly well abby um thanks so much for your time today and, and your mm-hmm. um the way you've described that i mean very eloquent and um mm-hmm. You know, so interesting. I've learned a lot today. Mm-hmm. You've you've had a, a a horrific experience, but you've you know obviously you're able to talk about it in the way that you have. So thank you so much for joining us today on on Cult Hackers, Abby. Thank you for having me. It's it's been really nice to talk about this. I'm always happy to raise awareness. I think that's really where the most change is going to happen in this industry is when enough people know about it that they stop sending kids there. <laughs> Right. Well, we'll we'll certainly do our best to help with that. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you.